Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Vetfolio Voice. In this discussion, sponsored in part by Hills, I'm joined by Dr. Janet Rocatorres, affectionately known as Dr. RT, for a discussion on proteinuria. Proteinuria can be one of those really frustrating and confusing conditions that we encounter in the course of treating various disease states. In this discussion, we break down the pathophysiology behind proteinuria, when to treat, how to treat, and how to discuss this condition with pet owners. Originally from Miami, Florida, Dr. RT moved to Indiana to pursue her DVM from Purdue University. After graduating in 2018, she moved to Tennessee for a rotating surgical and medical internship, and after completion, she headed back to Purdue University, where she's now in her last year of a dual internal medicine residency and master's program. She broke down our approach to proteinuria in a very flow chart or algorithmic fashion that I found extremely helpful, so I hope you guys enjoy it too. Let's get into it. All right, I'm joined by Dr. Janet Roca-Torres today. Um, Affectionately, I just learned, known as Dr. RT, which I love. Janet, thank you so much for being with me today here on the podcast to talk about proteinuria. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. We're so happy to have you. Um, I had a professor. He was actually my boss when I went, before I went to vet school, I worked in the ICU. um, And then he was my professor. And he said the abdomen is the most important area of the body because it houses the kidneys and they are more important than anything else. So (laughs) I'm excited to be talking about proteinuria and emphasizing that importance. Awesome. Yeah, me too. Uh, So can you just kind of walk us through the pathophysiology of proteinuria? I mean, under normal circumstances, of course, we're not expecting to see protein in the urine. So what kind of changes are occurring within the body that result in proteinuria? Yeah, so there could be a few different things going on. Um, When we think about the highest levels of proteinuria, usually it tends to be an issue in our glomerulus. Um, So the glomerular membrane has these three beautiful layers that actually protect against um, protein being filtered into the urine. And when any of those layers is damaged, especially the outermost layer, which is the podocyte layer, um, now albumin and other proteins, which normally are are restricted based off of their size and their negative charge can now kind of slip through and be filtered into the urine. Um, Second issue could be with our tubules. Um, So the proximal convoluted tubules of the kidney um, typically will actually take in any normal proteins that are um, coming in through the tubules and then they will actually um, endocytose them and degrade them. Um, But when they get overflowed, so when there's too much protein going to the tubules, um, now they're essentially overwhelmed. So it reaches a saturation point and can no longer uh, prevent the protein in the urine. So any type of either lesion um, in the glomerulus, um, in the renal tubules, or anything that causes an abundance of albumin to now go to um, the tubules is going to cause proteinuria. And there's lots of things that can cause it. (laughs) Well, that was actually my next question of, um, you know, anything, any type of lesion of the glomerulus or an excess of albumin into the tubules, what kind of things would cause us to see, um, you know, this excess protein or damage to the glomerulus? 
Yeah, so with damage to the glomerulus, I think kind of um, the big ones that we think of are just kind of general glomerular sclerosis, which could be due to different underlying uh, systemic diseases that initially maybe weren't renal related. Um, so a big one that I think of is actually Cushing's. Um, so Cushing's absolutely can cause a really high level of proteinuria. Um, and in some patients, not only do you have to treat the Cushing's to get the proteinuria under control, but they'll... Uh, they'll possibly also need some anti-proteinuric agents to also help mitigate the severity of the proteinuria. But then you also have um, a lot of um, glomerular diseases that can be secondary to infectious diseases. I think a big one that a lot of people talk about is Lyme nephritis, which um, for a long time was debated and is still debated, but I think a lot more people are jumping on the train that Lyme nephritis truly is um, a condition that is out there. And so we have seen that in our patients that come in for dialysis um, as well. And, and so I would say those are some big ones, secondary to an infectious disease or being overwhelmed. Hypertension is a big one, but oftentimes if we can control the hypertension, then the proteinuria should improve as well. And a lot of times if we send out just like basic blood work on our patients, I mean, I feel like with some degree of frequency, we'll see a positive on a urinalysis. So is a positive protein on a urinalysis, is that enough to diagnose proteinuria or do we need to do some more quantitative testing or is that kind of a gray answer where sometimes yes, sometimes no? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think it's it's a pretty gray answer um, in the sense that it's going to depend on more factors than just a protein in the urine. So our urinalysis typically will be reported um, as a one plus, two plus, or three plus uh, protein. And yes, anytime that we see a two plus or three plus protein and it's a clean sediment, um, there's no evidence of UTI or hematuria, anything like that, um, absolutely, I would follow up with more quantitative tests, such as the urine protein creatinine ratio, which is a true way to diagnose uh, proteinuria. Um, but then the uh, what I believe to be is the bigger gray zone is when we talk about our one plus protein. So again, in the context of a clean sediment, but a one plus protein with very concentrated urine is often insignificant. Um, so there's no need to kind of truly go down that rabbit hole unless there's something else that's giving you a suspicion that maybe there truly is some proteinuria in that patient. Um, it's very different when it's actually quite dilute urine-specific gravity. Um, so in those cases, if I have like, let's say a 1008-specific gravity and I have a 1-plus protein, um, I absolutely would recommend to follow up with a UPC because those can often be pretty significant and you'll often see much higher numbers in your UPC. And then I would say extremely acidic urine. Um, so acidic urine and um, low urine specific gravities can give you false negatives. Uh, so if you have any other reason to be worried about a, some sort of protein losing nephropathy, maybe something on your physical exam or your blood work that makes you think, oh, I am worried that there is some underlying proteinuria. If you have um, an acidic pH or if you have a low specific gravity, absolutely just go ahead and follow up with a UPC. And you touched on some of the, the other questions I have as far as this testing on our urinalysis, because we do sometimes see false positives. That is interesting about the false negatives, though. Um, I feel like I, I learned something from that answer. Thank you. 
Um, but what kind of things you, you touched on the very, uh, very concentrated urine. Is there anything else that would cause a false positive protein on a urinalysis? Yeah, so alkaline urine can actually also um, cause a, a false positive. So um, sometimes with those, we still will maybe talk to the client and say, let's take it with a grain of salt, because um, yes, there is a one plus protein urea, um, but maybe you know it's it's a very alkaline urine, and we'll still recommend um, a UPC at that point. But maybe we'll just say, hey, this is just to be sure that it's nothing big, instead of saying I'm worried that it could be something. The alkaline urine, I feel like one of the more common reasons that I see an alkaline urine, I, I always suspect like postprandial. Is is my thinking correct there? Are there other things I should be looking for with this really alkaline urine? Um, so I'd probably say the other thing that I start thinking about is a possibility of urease producing bacteria. Um, so that's one of those times where we worry about that clean sediment as well, where maybe there is um, a subclinical bacteria area that could be affecting our urinalysis. But um, absolutely, urease producing bacteria is something that typically pops to mind if it's too alkaline. Proteinuria itself can be an indicator for multiple disease processes, but why is the protein in the urine? Why is that specifically important? What do we worry about? What do we worry about in a patient who has proteinuria? Aside from the primary disease process, what kind of effects are we worried about in the kidneys? Yeah, yeah. So there's actually a, a few consequences that come along with proteinuria, some of them renal related, and some of them actually even not renal related. Um, so non renal related could be edema. Um, so patients can develop pleural effusion, peritoneal effusion, or subcutaneous edema, even if they have no evidence of hypoalbuminemia, they can still have this consequence with a really high um, proteinuria. Um, you can also get hypertension secondary to proteinuria. So proteinuria can lead to um, hypertension and then hypertension can worsen proteinuria as well. Um, and I would say a, a pretty big one is a hypercoagulability. Um, and so these patients are at a very high risk. There was a, a study that came out that 25% of dogs in this study that had a protein losing nephropathy um, also had evidence of thromboembolism and were considered to be hypercoagulable. So, you know, that, that can be be fatal in a, of its own. And it's hard to have these conversations with a client and discuss, you know, the next steps and all of this testing when typically these guys come in and they're perfectly healthy. So I think knowing all of the risks um, of proteinuria can be really helpful when talking to a client. But then if they do have evidence of chronic kidney disease, proteinuria, absolutely, there's a lot of studies that have shown that it is a negative prognostic indicator. And so our goal is, is to try to get that proteinuria under control in order to help those kidneys or at least delay them from, from getting into like kind of the more advanced stages. Absolutely. And the hypercoagulability, um, I feel like I'm going back here and remembering my pathophysiology and all of this. It's, it's the antithrombin three, right? We're losing that through the kidneys and that's creating this hypercoagulable state. So that has always been the, the theory up until actually relatively recently, um, that it's now multifactorial. So absolutely the antithrombin three um, is still kind of our go-to as what we think is one of the mechanisms involved. Um, the others are still maybe uh, theories right now or just kind of, 
you know, when you read Edinger, it says the mechanism is not yet known. Um, and it's because they also did a study that showed that there were hypercoagulable PLN dogs that had normal levels of AT3. Interesting. Yeah, I know. It like takes away everything you learned in, in yes. vet school. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. I felt like, wait a second. No, that was like in my head. This is how yeah, it works. Yeah. Mine too. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that as we figure out what that mechanism is, hopefully someday. Someday, right? <laughs> when we see proteinuria, so so let's say we see it on a urinalysis, we do our quantitative testing. Yes, we do indeed have proteinuria. Does all proteinuria warrant treatment or how do we approach that patient in terms of, you know, when do we recommend treatment and what kinds of things are we reach, reaching for, for them? Beautiful. That that's such an important question um, because the, the agents that we're going to recommend beside the dietary recommendations, you know, they have their own risks. And so it does become really important to know when, when do you kind of jump the gun and, and go ahead and start treatment? And um, my kind of biggest thing and, and biggest emphasis, if I I had to choose one would be that proteinuria should only be diagnosed if you have consistently been able to get proteinuria on two separate UPCs two weeks apart. And some people will even recommend three. Um, so definitely starting any type of treatment off of one UPC is very contraindicated. Um, there is transient or, or essentially physiological proteinuria that, that you can get on a single UPC that then you recheck them the next day and it's actually gone. Um, so strenuous exercise, um, fever, things like that can absolutely cause a, a transient proteinuria that's absolutely going to resolve on its own and doesn't have any consequence. And so Seeing it and documenting it consistently on more than one occasion, two weeks apart, um, definitely warrants treatment if it's documented as true proteinuria. So um, in cats, uh, it's typically if it's greater than 0.4, and in dogs, if it's greater than 0.5 for their UPC, um, and it's documented multiple times, we would recommend treatment. Um, but then there's kind of like this borderline zone, of course, like with everything, um, with cats, if they're between the 0.2 to 0.4. And in dogs, if they're between the 0.2 to 0.5, we often just recommend to recheck a UPC in two months um, and not start treatment just yet. And if they're consistently having proteinuria on those UPCs and they're in that uh, borderline gray zone, then oftentimes we recommend starting treatment in those guys. I'm so glad you said that. I don't know if you could see me like scribbling something down over here. I was like, I have to write this down. Otherwise, like I'm definitely have to going to have to go back and make sure I re-listen to all of that because that's always the thing that throws me when I do these UPCs is, you know, at what number do I start to get worried? And I always have to go back and look it up and try to figure it out. Um, so I love the way that you broke it down there of like, you know, here's what you're looking for. Um, here's the values that are definitely a problem. And if you get in that gray zone, kind of how to handle it. I feel like that's so useful. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad it was helpful. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what about dietary considerations? Are there any dietary considerations that we should keep in mind when we're managing a proteinuric patient? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's definitely an enormous amount of research out there um, recommending um, essentially moderately protein restricted diets, which are our prescription renal diets. It's essentially what we're recommending. And so when you look at the IRIS guidelines, what, what can be a little bit confusing is usually it's stage two where they start to recommend the renal diet. Um, but if you look through it carefully, any stage of proteinuria, regardless of whether they're azotemic or not, should be be placed on a renal diet. So only moderate protein restriction, because, you know, kidney disease is um, highly metabolic, right? So it, it can absolutely require a lot more energy. And so you don't want to severely protein restrict them. But um, any evidence of proteinuria that you know that you're going to start treatment, first thing is going to be a moderate protein restriction with our renal diets. And, and with some cases, that's actually ends up being enough. If we have a patient who you know, like we talked about, sometimes these guys come in and they look overall pretty happy and healthy. Um, I know that there are certain diets out there that are kind of like the early kidney diets, the early stage kidney diets that are protein restricted, but not maybe not quite as protein restricted as some of like the, these true kidney diets. Do you worry about weight loss, muscle loss, things like that, starting a kidney diet on a pet who? has proteinuria, but is otherwise, you know, seems to be doing okay. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's definitely something to watch out for. Um, the main goal in the way that these renal diets work, though, is by decreasing the renal um, trafficking of protein. And so we're decreasing the energy demand on the kidneys and the amount of work that they have to do, um, which, you know, it kind of decreases that high um, metabolic state that it puts the body in when they're when the kidneys are going through all this. So it's going to help in, in that form to decrease the energy demand in the first place um, for the animal. Because remember that, you know, these patients with kidney disease, unfortunately, get muscle wasted, and they can become cachexic regardless of the diet that they're on. And that's that, you know, really high um, energy demand that's being placed by the kidneys. So the goal being if we can decrease that workload on the kidneys, hopefully decrease that energy demand as well. Um, but also, oftentimes, these um, renal diets, a good compensation that they have is they tend to be a little high in fat, which means be careful with your pancreatitis animals. Um, but they're a little higher in fat, which tends to be be more calorically dense. And so that is a good um, part to kind of help them out with that aspect as well. Basically, you know, not, not necessarily everything in moderation because we're not moderating the kidney diet or something like that, but making these small adjustments and um, just really monitoring along the way. And if we're seeing weight loss, making sure we can intervene. Yeah. And, and remembering that as this disease progresses, you know, our goals, un unfortunately, we don't cure chronic kidney disease um, or, or, you know, even when there's proteinuria that doesn't necessarily cure the kidney disease, even when we have that under control. Um, so as they progress with time, um, that energy demand also increases. And so sometimes they actually need an increase in their um, kilocalories as well. So that's, um, even for our patients, sometimes um, when they're hospitalized, you know how typically we're like, oh, they need to be fed, you know, um, their resting energy requirement via the E-tube. Um, when I have kidney um, cats, I actually go beyond what their RER is even while in hospital because they have such a high energy demand. And if we're talking about kilocalories, I feel like something 
rings true to me that if we're talking about protein, more protein restricted diets, we should probably be very specific with the owners as far as what amount to feed because we're changing the kilocalories when in the food as we put them on this new diet. And I'll be honest, I could completely see myself saying, okay, time to switch to a kidney diet and my dog eats two cups a day. So I'm going to feed her two cups a day when in reality, that might not be adequate for her. Exactly. Yeah. So oftentimes in our visit summaries, whenever we have a recommendation for a diet, um, if we're sending them with a few samples and it's maybe it's just two or three samples, we will um, write out the kilocalories for each diet and then how much of each one they should feed. You know, if they feed them twice a day, we break it down to how much they should feed twice a day and we give them a range, right? We kind of give them a minimum to a maximum unless it's, um, you know, an animal that's not overweight and what we want them to do is, is make maybe put on some weight, then sometimes we just don't give them that high end. And we say they should try to eat a minimum of this. If they're consistently eating a lot less than this, then give us a call because then we might make some other recommendations as well. Absolutely. And just breaking down, giving them the, the specifics. And we're kind of talking about monitoring for weight loss, muscle loss, things like that in these patients. What other considerations should we have for monitoring a a patient with kidney disease, proteinuria, um, you know, these kinds of disease processes? Yeah, so um, typically, let's say for proteinuria, um, if you start treating them and they get to kind of that ideal state, so are, are responding to whether it be the anti-proteinuric agents or to the kidney diet, um, typically our goal is, is to decrease that protein, um, obviously to the normal level, so less than 0.5 in dogs or less than 0.4 in cats, but also um, just dropping it to 50% of what their baseline was is considered a success. Um, So if you get an animal that comes in with like a crazy UPC of let's say 10 and you drop it down to three or four um, and you might think, oh, that's still really, really high UPC, that's actually considered responding to treatment. Of course, you may want to increase because the lower you can get it, the better. Um, But you always want to get it to the lowest possible without causing an acute kidney injury. Um, Because that's where we start to get concerned with like our um, angiotensin receptor blockers and our ACE inhibitors is it's not very common, but a side effect is causing an acute kidney injury. And if I had to say the most important thing is um, to remember that an AKI is not just evidence of they were non-azotemic before and now they are azotemic. And it's not evidenced only by seeing them. Well, they were a stage two and now they're a stage three. Now I should be worried. Um, And AKI can also be um, in a patient that their renal values are still within normal limits, um, but they're 30% greater than the last time that they were checked. That actually is evidence of an acute kidney injury, even if that patient is feeling great, even if everything else is normal and um, they seem to be tolerating it well. Um, That's actually an AKI and may warrant pausing um, your medications for a few days and maybe restarting at a slightly lower dose as well. This talk has been so useful and just, I don't know, I feel like I'm learning so much in this discussion. And also I love the values and the guidelines that you're giving 
interesting. I think they're they're really practical and I like the numbers. I always say I was really good at math. So naturally I went into biology, right. um, <laughs> which really makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, but it, but it, I just feel like they're, they're, it's really practical and useful information that we can take and apply to tons and tons of patients. So um, Janet, Dr. RT, thank you so much for all of this today. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Um, I think probably the main thing is, you know, don't panic with proteinuria. Um, when we were, uh, I've been discussing, you know, the podcast and the webinars um, with different colleagues of mine that I went to vet school with, and, and typically their first response is, oh, I hate proteinuria. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of like the common consensus, but there, there really is a lot of literature out there that can help. So um, I'd say when you suddenly get proteinuria in a perfectly healthy um, patient, and just remember, um, I would say one, take some time to think about, is it possible that this is being caused by something else? There's so many systemic diseases that can cause the proteinuria and evaluate for those first. Don't jump to starting medication. Um, Once you confirm, you know, proteinuria, then just talk to the owner and remember why it is important that even though their patient or or their pet looks so perfectly healthy and happy to them, that there are risks that are associated with this. And and we're trying to get ahead of it um, and prevent those risks from happening. And, you know, there are some medications out there that can be a little bit scary to use, but there's a lot of guidelines for them on plums and on the iris guidelines and plenty of literature um, that has popped up, especially for our angiotensin receptor blockers to help kind of ease your mind of how to use it. And just always follow up with them. If you're worried about causing an AKI, always remember, see them in a week. Um, And then every three to four weeks would be a UPC until you can finally get them to that nice little golden point that you want. Fantastic. Well, again, you know, really practical, useful information that we can use in the trenches to help a lot of patients. Um, Your, what you have have heard, I think is spot on for me, like the proteinuria and you're like, can I just pretend that's not there? Like, yeah, it's like, Oh, two plus. I don't know. They're doing fine. I'll They're just okay. see them in six months to a year. And then they come back a little bit early and you're like, oh no. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think this podcast is going to help quell a lot of that panic and really give people, um, you know, a, a good clear vision of kind of where to go next with all of this. So thank you again so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. It was our pleasure. We're thrilled to have you. A huge thank you to Dr. RT for such an excellent breakdown on proteinuria. I think your insight will help make the management of this condition just a little bit easier for all of us. I also want to say a big thank you to Hills and to all of you listeners for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Mm-hmm.